0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. Welcome to the final episode of the first season of Let It Roll. I'm Nate Wilcox, and I'll be finishing up my conversation with Ed Ward about his book, The History of Rock and Roll Part 1, 1920-1963. This week we'll be concluding 1963 and hearing about the Lebanese restaurant that birthed surf music and saved Fender Guitars. How Murray Wilson's failed musical career laid the groundwork for his son's amazing success. How Columbia Records buried Bob Dylan's first attempt to go rock and roll. The split between kids singing My Boyfriend's Back and those singing Blowing in the Wind. We'll also talk about Stevie Wonder's first hit and why you can hear someone shouting what key, what key in the background. The mystery of Smokey Robinson's failure to get a hit with the Supremes. And we finally get over to England and talk about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the revolution they triggered and would bring to America in 1964. Be sure and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. But now it's time to plug in those earbuds and hear what Ed has to say. we talk about the Grammys. Uh, in 1963, <laughs> and it's just sort of like, what the heck? I mean, you know, I left my heart in San Francisco. the big winner, and the, the well,
1: that makes sense. That was the, was the best hit. pop song
0: of the year of 1962. But this, the the rock hit, was one I had never heard of.
1: Alley Cat by Bent Fabric, who is a Danish um, middle of the road piano player. I don't know why. Well, it was because you know rock and roll. I mean, let's face it, Jethro Tull has won best traditional folk performance um, and best metal band and the same year yeah
0: and uh, so the grammys you know out of touch in 1963 would continue that streak <laughs> for decades well, at least
1: 2018 yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know one thing you do talk about that's big is surf music with which we talked a little bit about the beach boys but they had just a monster year surfing usa
1: well and there was all the See, initially, this was all about Dick Dale, who was this Lebanese kid who uh, he and his father moved to uh, just south of San Francisco, uh, uh, Los Angeles, to um, work in the aircraft industry, which was military stuff was really big in that whole area of the country. And there was lots and lots and lots of jobs. So the Mansours um, moved down there and... They had previously run a Greek restaurant, i.e., Lebanese, um, somewhere up in the northeast. I guess Boston or someplace. And so, um, young uh, Dick Richard Mansoor had um, he'd, he'd played percussion with a family band in the Greek restaurant, playing Greek tunes, and, and he also learned how to play the bouzouki, which is where he got that, you know, kind of picking style he did on the guitar. And he also discovered that he loved to surf and was good at it. And so he got a band together and uh, eventually quit his job over at Lockheed or whoever it was and um, opened a music store in Balboa Beach. And um, so he, he sold guitars. Um, the Leo Fender with Fender Guitars was nearby. And here was this kid who was willing to try anything that fender came down also selling lots of fender guitars uh, which fender thought was a really good idea so uh, because he once again had wanted to capture the jazz market and utterly failed nobody thought that a stratocaster was a jazz instrument in fact i don't think anybody ever played one in a jazz context
0: you still don't see it Um, the the jazz guitar sticking with the hollow bodies. Yeah, and so yeah, Dick Dale with Miser Lou, an enormous hit, but then the Beach Boys come along and add
1: harmony vocals to it. Right. Well, there was already a scene of instrumental music going on that Dick Dale had, he never thought of it as surf music, but if people told him that's what it was, he was good with that because he was a surfer. Um, and, And, you know, he had these big... Dances in this ballroom that his father found that used to be a big band uh, venue in the 40s and had fallen on hard times. And uh, so, Dick Dale and the Deltones once a week they would play a dance there, and the surfers all came and they'd do the surfer stomp, which was basically stomp your left foot, stomp your right foot, because they were mostly pretty drunk. Um, And so, you couldn't be subtle uh, at a Dick Dale gig, but you also, it was simple music. Um, and these kids who have been buying the Fender guitars and the cheap knockoffs from Sears and so forth. They went, oh, I could do that. All you need to do is write a melody, play it a couple of times, write a bridge, and then go out with the melody, you know, a and- couple of minutes. And, and all of a sudden these surf bands started springing up because Dale was selling records and all these hungry guys who ran tiny little record labels in Los Angeles, they wanted a piece of that. So they started coming. And so by the time of the famous fishing trip, when, when Dennis Wilson and, and Mike Love went fishing, and, and Dennis said, you know, there's all of, these, um, all of these surf records, but they're all instrumental. Nobody is singing about surf music. Uh, you know, we ought to try to write some song. because surfing is fun. Dennis ought to know. He was the only guy in the group who, who uh, surfed. And also they'd been playing music together um, with Carl Wilson leading a kind of white kid doo-wop group called Carl and the Passions. So, and it's Brian had been, you know, learning how to compose and he'd been learning about harmonies because he loved a lot of these people like the high lows and, and the, the four, four freshmen. freshmen. And so he he was ready for this, and oh, so we write songs. They could have written uh, songs about you know vegetable farming. As far as he was concerned, he just wanted to write songs and harmonize them and produce them. And so the, here they are in the garage, you know, re- recording this this tune with a a paper box, a cardboard box that, that Brian's playing drums on, surfing. And it turns out to be a huge hit. Yeah, because the,
0: their dad comes home from the weekend away and and sees what they've done with the money he left him to eat. They rented music and recorded this track, and he goes all in, invests in them, well, puts them he, in the station wagon on tour. He had
1: he had a career as a failed musician, and and he also but while he was trying to not fail, he made all these connections. He knew people at Capitol. He knew some other people. In Hawthorne, there, who had a recording studio and had had some success with records that they had written and produced. So he pulled in some of his favors and they recorded more Beach Boys tunes and um, eventually. They took off and sold so much that they had to find a major label to take it over. So once again, Murray goes to Capitol Records and he goes, I got this thing. And they had just lost Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, um, who sold a few records themselves. And they were desperate to find something in pop. They were doing okay with country, but they were desperate to find something in pop that they could move. And to teenagers, because teenagers bought lots and lots of records and didn't think much about it. And the Beach Boys, you know, became huge. And then Brian Wilson writes this song Surf City that becomes a huge hit for Jan and Dean. Right. Well, Jan and Dean had been around the scene forever. Um, They'd begun with Jan and Arnie. Arnie Woo Woo Ginsburg was a very popular disc jockey there in uh, Los Angeles. And, of course, you record a song with a disc jockey, you're probably going to get airplay. So they'd been doing that. And Dean was this art student or something. Uh, And... um, so that yeah, they they were, uh, what was the name? Of the, Linda was the name of this record that they had made, which wasn't selling. So they decided to jump on the uh, the surf bandwagon after seeing what the Beach Boys had done, and, and they put out an album called Jan and Dean Take Linda Surfing, and that uh, was as a way of going, hey, we recorded this record, Linda, you you should maybe buy it. But it, it backfired on them. All the stuff that sold off of the record were singles of the surf tunes, which was fine with them. Yeah, yep, and they, they made it go. And
0: so, you know, you the 60s music, and to me, in a lot of ways, is about synthesis with the Beatles sort of bringing all these threads together. But the Beach Boys and surf music at this point is sort of a, disp, you know, just a weird thing going on in California. And then you have folk music. On the East Coast, especially you know, with Bob Dylan, and a very it seems like a complete planet removed. Right. But one another track that I'd heard of but hadn't listened to until I read this book is this Bob Dylan mixed up confusion, which is a rock record from 1963 by Bob Dylan, and it's pretty good.
1: Yeah, it's you know it's certainly comparable to everything else that was going on. And Columbia heard this. I mean, I I, I don't know whether he snuck in the studio and recorded it or or what. But, but I, I'm pretty sure that John Hammond, who had signed him and who, who had watched his instinct be proven that, that this Bob Dylan guy was somebody, he heard that and he knew exactly how the folk community felt about rock music. I mean, it was just, you know, these are the people who made Muddy Waters play an acoustic guitar at, at the Newport Folk Festival. You know, Bob Dylan, who was one of them, you know, a young guy, just like everybody else, he couldn't do this. Yeah. I... And and it, the, the record was withdrawn. It was never advertised. It was never promoted. And for years, it was like really, really rare. You know, I, even back as, as recently as the 80s, there were copies going for 500 bucks.
0: And, and, you know, if that's the only way you can hear it, if you're a real addict, it's worth it because it's a really good track. But Dylan puts it all together with a second album
1: in this year, Free Will and Bob Dylan, which is the folk album. Right. Here he is, King of the Protest Songs. In fact, so much that Talking John Birch Blues on there, uh, he tried to perform that on Ed Sullivan and got censored. And Columbia had to remove that track from the record. And uh, you know, and, and it was a, a perfect record. The cover shot by Don Hunstein shows um, Bob and his girlfriend Susie Rotolo walking down a street in the village in, in the aftermath of a snowstorm, and you know it was just so appealing to everybody. And then you get you get in the uh, into the record, in the tracks on the record, and and there's great stuff on there. It's a real it. The first album, the best stuff was the folk stuff. The second album it was all Bob, and boy, everybody went, "Wow, this has been bubbling under the surface, and you know, blowing in the wind." And and uh, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary taking off on that. Yeah, there was there was a lot going on with with him, but there were no electric instruments involved. There yeah. was it, it was felt that there was a purity and and this purity and authenticity bugbear that the folk community had. That would blow up in their faces fairly soon. But for the moment, there were radicals writing in to Sing Out magazine, which was the Bible of, of the folk movement. And they said, wait a minute, not all electric music is bad. Chuck Berry records blues. And some of it, he's completely on electric instruments. Muddy Waters plays blues, and he's from the Mississippi Delta, and he knew Robert Johnson. You know, we can't exclude this stuff. And everybody went, oh, brother, you know, that's really not authentic. Muddy Waters is selling out. Chuck Berry is beyond the pale.
0: Yeah, it, it almost reminds me of the split these days between Clinton voters and Bernie Sanders voters or Trump voters. It's this sort of elite East Coast, upper middle class Segment that looks down on everybody else and doesn't well, want to be. I don't know
1: how upper middle class. Although yes, it was it was largely out of colleges, and colleges did cost money. Uh, I don't think many state state universities, you know, were hotbeds of folkies. It was more places like the University of Chicago, and uh, Columbia and NYU, and, and uh, uh, places in Philadelphia. I mean, Philadelphia had an immense folk festival, very important, uh, and of course, Harvard and all the colleges up there in Boston. Yeah, and Newport.
0: One thing you talk about is the split between people who are singing and playing Blowing in the Wind and people who are singing along with My Boyfriend's Back and You're Going to Be in Trouble. And and you talk about that as a pretty big
1: divide. And It's a of class history. difference. It's a class difference. You know, I mean, Folkies, when they, they hear My Boyfriend, they look at the cover of, uh, of Freewheel and Bob Dylan. And these other, you know, working class kids—the kids that I I grew up with—I mean, boy, they were totally scandalized by the Beatles. You know, what those faggots? Look at their hair—they're not good like the like the Four Seasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But
0: the the Beatles—you know—overwhelm them. Before we get back to the Beatles, though, I want to talk a little bit, you know, about what the old rockers are doing. You talk about Chuck Berry. Uh, doing talking about you, which is a great song. Yeah, doesn't get any traction.
1: Well, you know, he was by that point he was a little, uh, shall we say, controversial, and his his man act trial had been going on forever and ever, and I think the Chess Boys were still pretty much behind him, but he, like Jerry Lee Lewis, he kept doing terrible things to his career and i think also the public was going are we want, going to want to buy records by this guy who's doing sex crimes yeah and i also i also think that you know teenagers were a little put off by that
0: yeah i mean you know when the guy's going to jail for taking minors across the state lines it's not it's it's just not it's not a good selling point for a pop artist. You also had Elvis, which you don't talk about El- what Elvis was doing that year, but he was doing some killer tracks by uh, Pomus and Schumann, like Marie's the Name and, and uh, The Name of My Latest Flame and, and, and a couple others that, I mean, the King still had it. He wasn't
1: the King anymore, but he's still doing... Well, he, he was trying to become a movie star. I mean, he, he realized that that was better than, you know, sitting in a bus and going from gig to gig with a band, which he still enjoyed doing, but if you could live in Beverly Hills, show up for work for a certain number of days, and then go into the studio and record some music, that's a much easier life. And Elvis, having known hardship as a child, you know, he was into an easy life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. And then I want to cover some more of the Phil Spector uh stuff that was coming out that year he did did, the do run run with the crystals uh a barry greenwich song just a monster monster track
1: yeah yeah i mean he he had good ears and he also had the aldon people you know and aldon by this point uh had been bought by screen gems music and had a big presence on the west coast so um specter knew that he could get Quality material. Ellie Greenwich and uh, Jeff Barry were um, they, they? I think they may have moved. Uh, Carol King and Jerry Goffin were living in New York. But no matter where Phil went, there was always somebody waving a bunch of you know. Um, what's what's the word I'm looking for here? Great material. No, I, I, I lead sheets. Lead sheets yeah. of of um, they were waving lead sheets of of great songs in his face. Phil, Phil, look at this. Take a look at this.
0: Yeah, and he brings stuff like the Goffin King, then he Kiss Me track to just incredible life. Yeah. You know, and and uh, set in a template. And then there weren't
1: even such a thing as the Crystals. I mean, there was the Crystals, but then if inspiration struck on the West Coast, well, he had Crystals there, too. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. He'd record with Darling Love, and the Crystals would hear their new single on the radio before they
1: ever we, heard it. Do you remember doing that? No, I don't remember doing that.
0: <laughs> and it, and it's it's funny, you know, looking back on it, the the aesthetic of the Beatles, where it's self-contained, the Beatles and Bob Dylan, self-contained band, self-contained songwriters, become so dominant in the '60s. It's weird to think that in '63, somebody the same age as John Lennon, like Phil Spector, is doing this
1: complete assembly line with anonymous singers that are interchangeable. And once again, this musicians. was the way it was done. This was the this was the best minds. And and they they really had a track record because not only were they selling in the United States but they were selling elsewhere, you know they were selling in Canada they were selling in in England, um, they knew this was the way to do it because well look at the look at the balance sheet here
0: yeah the track record and Motown's doing the same thing and probably apotheosis of Motown in 1963 is Stevie Wonder's Fingertips Fingertips Part Two which was recorded live with the Motown house band is just an incredible... No, that it
1: wasn't the Motown house band. That that
0: was a touring band. Touring band. But some of the guys from the Motown house band weren't
1: there. Well, yeah, I, I think they they had to have um, at least some of the guys from the Funk Brothers on the road to give it that authentic sound. Yeah. And, and... But this was like a, a complete uh, accident, Fingertips. Um, they were recording the Motortown Review... And Barry thought that maybe the hit that he really hadn't had yet from Stevie was in that, in his set. And he had this, um, he recorded a, uh, an instrumental album of harmonica instrumentals, and one of them was a tune called Fingertips. Um, I think because he played a chromatic uh, harmonica and, and the little slide that, changes the reads you're, you're dealing with, uh, it's done by your fingertips anyway. So Stevie used fingertips as his last number and, um, but it was like five or six minutes long, but they found a good place to edit it and they got two, three minute, Sides and put it out as fingertips part one and part two. And part two is where he's whipped the crowd up. And so you immediately descend on this chaos that's going on in this, in this auditorium in, in Chicago. And uh, S- Steve, he's got everybody clapping their hands and he's, he's twiddling around on the harmonica. And he's saying goodbye, goodbye. You know, I gotta go now. And he's walking off the stage slowly, and people are clapping their hands and yelling. And you know, the whole thing is just like it's a, you're listening to a slow motion explosion going on. And then he he comes back on stage, surprising the band who have been you know taking their instruments down and setting up for the Marvelettes. And um, Stevie is back on stage with. A band that's half his and half the Marvelettes, and the bass player's going, What key? What key? You know, because he, I got to play this tune I've never heard before. I thought I was getting ready for the girls, you know, so that's what I'm getting paid for. So the whole thing is just chaos, but it, it coalesces there at the last moment. And then Stevie plays through another couple of choruses. This was a top 10 record, obviously. Yeah, it was a huge
0: hit, but. Uh, You know, Motown was hitting on all cylinders. You had Marvin Gaye with Pride and Joy. You had uh, Smokey Robinson, and the Miracles with You Really Got a Hold on Me. And we haven't talked about Smokey, but he he had been kind of Barry Gordy's right-hand man. You know, the lead songwriter uh, for Motown in a lot of ways. But he couldn't get a hit with the Supremes. They try with Breathtaking Guy and Flop again. Yeah, but he,
1: I mean, he was also one of Barry's best friends. I mean, this is why he was a vice president of Motown when that title meant absolutely nothing. He, um... Barry had been aware of them because his sister, uh, Barry's sister, Anna, um, had been in the music business via her own label distributed by Chess. And and there's always been this rivalry between Chicago and Detroit, with Detroit on the losing end up until this point. And um, the Miracles made a couple of records for um, Chess. Uh, Their first record was Got a Job which Smokey wrote as an answer record to the Silhouettes' Get a Job. And it didn't sell. And I believe Bad Girl was also released on chess. And that's the kind of song that has just enough novelty and just enough of an unusual presentation that Barry's going, I got to get these boys a deal. But meanwhile, he's got no money. He's, he's dealing with the, with Jackie Wilson and, and so, of course, when he starts thinking Detroit talent, he goes after the miracles. So Smokey's been around for a long time. Yeah, it
0: hits big with Shop Around and... Right. The first, I think, number two hit from Motown. Right. And, uh, and by 1963, I mean, You Really Got a Hold of Me is a, a masterpiece. Right. This absolute brilliant songwriting, brilliant performance, huge influence on John Lennon and the Beatles across the sea.
1: Um, but he can't get a hit for the Supremes. Right. And who knows why that is? Because they were doing some pretty good records. Right. Um, it really, I, I have no explanation for that. I've, I've heard a lot of the early, I've heard the Primates recordings and so forth. I, I've heard uh, Buttered Popcorn, which is a really out there kind of record for who the Supremes later became. Not going to perform that at the COPA for i no. damn
0: sure. No, but you know, you take a track like Breathtaking Guy that Smokey wrote for the Supremes that did nothing. You put it on a playlist with this other stuff and it holds its own. I mean, you do not, does not sound like a clunker.
1: It's 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 just a big mystery, but maybe well, what... they could have been putting out too many records. I mean, how many records do you want to add from Motown this week? I mean, come on, yeah. we have got to give these other guys a chance.
0: And they're competing with things like Heat Wave, uh, a Holland Dozier Holland song for Martha and the Vandellas. Is it's an absolute monster, right? And and very hard to beat. But you talk about the Chicago Detroit rivalry, and Chicago, of course, is the home of Curtis Mayfield, who comes and the Impressions, who come back in with a huge hit. Uh, after kind of some years in the wilderness after Jerry Butler leaves them. And the stuff Mayfield is doing, not only with the Impressions, but also with Major Lance, is just about as good as soul gets.
1: Yeah, that's that's the church being there in 3D, definitely. Curtis, um, between his guitar style, which is clearly influenced by um, Roebuck Staples, the Staples singers being the big um, and completely unique. They didn't sound like anybody else, but he was the, the big cheese in Chicago gospel at that point. And so Curtis, when he realizes that that's the way to go, he starts writing songs in, in that kind of mode, that, that way of of, um, of presentation, the, the sort of filigreed, simple guitar, and, and um, the high registers it that, almost reminds yes, me of
0: uh, West African guitar or something, yeah,
1: it's very different from uh,
0: you know, the bass heavy guitar you hear a lot of other soul records. But one thing before we we're gonna get to the Beatles and the Stones in a minute to wrap up the year, but Trini Lopez has this is another thing that I'd, I'd heard his version of If I Had a Hammer before, but I'd never really paid any attention. And I read this book, start listening to that album they recorded live. And that's a pretty amazing rock and roll record. I had thought of him as a folky because of "If I Had a Hammer" being a folk song, but he's really—he's
1: a nightclub performer. Yeah, he's—he's he's not, and and he's—he's he's playing on the Sunset Strip, so his audience is a lot of show business people, and he's got to keep it up to the moment because you know it's Los Angeles. Come on,
0: yeah. But it also, when you listen to the album, and if you just re-listen to that, his version of If I Have a Hammer, you hear the Latin inflections, the Latin beat, and you sort of realize Trini Lopez is kind of the heir to Richie Valens right. and the bridge to Johnny Rivers later on, that Latin American music is a big part of the rock and roll story, but it kind of floats underground, I think, because Ritchie Valens died and didn't become that great
1: Right, star. I but- mean, and and earlier people like Don Tosti weren't, weren't going to be, you know, because they sang in Spanish a lot of the time, you know, and they recorded things like Marijuana Boogie. Yeah. Um, they weren't going to be top of the pops anytime soon. And, of course, also, um, the Latin scene in America has always been divided into three markets. New York's Puerto Rican Afro-Cuban stuff, which is a lot of jazz influenced. Um, the Texas Tejano San Antonio based sound. And then the West Coast um, also Chicano sound, but since the Mexican population of Los Angeles and the Mexican population of Texas came from two different Mexican states, the musical traditions are different. So you get mariachi in Texas, not in, uh, in Los Angeles. Um, and also, there were no crossovers between those three markets. So the numbers were really small. So nobody was paying attention to that. It was only when Bob Keane decided that Richie Valens was worth getting behind that anything happened. Yeah. And then he tried. Also it's, it's, uh, it's notable that Trini Lopez is from Texas. Uh, Yeah.
0: I I didn't know that. And, And, but that is a great album and really a lot of fun. Um, one record I want to talk about that you didn't bring up is Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks doing this killer version of who do you love by Bo Diddley with Robbie Robertson on completely unhinged distortion soaked lead guitar.
1: Yeah. I I completely missed Ronnie Hawkins. I mean, he was not on New York radio and that's what I was listening to at the time. Um, I don't know that he, I wonder where he sold. Also he was on roulette. Which was a mob label out of New York, yeah. Uh, and yet he couldn't; they couldn't get him on the radio there. So wh- where were records like that selling? I don't. Know, I don't know that it sold South. anywhere.
0: But the the thread I want to connect it to is uh, James Feld, who was the roommate of the Rolling Stones, in his memoirs talks about uh, when he about the time when he's living with Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, and Keith Richards in this hovel in Edith Grove, London, where he talks about they acquire this pile of records they've gone to a radio station and and stolen which is a brian jones habit (laughs) stolen a big pile of records and they're going through it and there's some things they knew and some things they didn't and they get down to the bottom of it and there's this ronnie hawkins record they never heard of brian jones puts it on and just will not take it off the turntable and is utterly obsessed with this roaring sound and so their second single which you talk about the stones a lot in this chapter and i think it's appropriate but you don't mention the side guitar that Brian Jones puts on I Want to Be Your Man, which is a Lennon McCartney song. And that's, you know, the, the big threat is Lennon McCartney are, are becoming not just successes with the Beatles, but successes as songwriters and dominating right. British pop. W- which rock. is the
1: same thing that Brian Wilson was doing. He was just giving away. Not giving away, he was obviously going to get uh, royalties on it, but he's just giving away stuff that he could have done for his own band. Same with Lennon and McCartney. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Who Do You Love is, is like... There's never been another song like it. It is completely surrealistic. God knows where Bo Diddley got those lyrics. The first time I heard it, it was by um, it was on a version by John Hammond, John Hayes Hammond, you know, John Hammond Jr. A- a- and And um, hardly the most impressive recording of it, although it did have the band as a backup. Yeah, Robbie Robertson and company. Yeah, and and yet. Um, it scared me, even in his version. When I heard the original Bo Diddley version, it, that was really something. Yeah, the lyrics are straight up voodoo. I mean, yeah, I, where did that come from? Well, you know, I I disagree with all these people who talk about the great voodoo connection um, to rhythm and blues and blues music because voodoo was not practiced outside of New Orleans and certain places in Florida. It was not practiced in the United States. Um, where that stuff came from, I don't know. We could go to I think Jung or something and yeah, talk about collective yeah. unconscious. Well, it's
0: tied to the Pentecostal stuff, I think. And and the and the, I don't know if what your hillbilly roots are like. Mine are pretty deep. And when I hear versions of that old time religion, sometimes I get the feeling that the old time religion they're talking about. Predates Christianity. Oh yeah, and uh, and it can become very spooky. And you got you know Robert Johnson singing about Hellhound on my trail and things like that. So there's this undercurrent, and that's written into books that people like Brian Jones are reading around this time. And so there's this real mythology of linking the blues and devil worship. And somebody like Brian Jones, Not who's,
1: devil worship, but but alternative saints. Let's put
0: it <laughs> that way. Yeah, and and somebody like Brian Jones who's Frankly, a bad egg he has been run out of Cheltenham for knocking up, you know, virtually every girl in town, been fired from every record store in London for pilfering, uh, you know, from the
1: till. And these kicked two- out of uh, out of uh, Alexis Corner's house where he'd been sleeping under the table. I mean, yeah, he, he was he was a bad egg. Yeah. And, and he's a little bit older than Keith Richards and Mick
0: Jagger who come from Dartford come to the Ealing Club, see him doing Dust My Broom, the Elmore James song with Paul Jones later, Man for Man singing, are completely blown away by him, move into this apartment with him, Keith Richards spends eight hours a day playing guitar and listening to Jimmy Reed records with Brian. Uh, Mick Jagger's insanely jealous. At one point, Keith and Brian are doing an Everly Brothers duet, which I can only imagine. Boy, I'd like to hear that. Like. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, he imbues the, the Stones with this ethos. And he's somebody is kind of a forgotten figure, weirdly, but I like the way that you focused on him as the architect of what the
1: stones were doing. Well, he's the guy who made inroads into that sector of the trad jazz, uh, scene in London with, uh, Alexis corner, uh, and, and his, you know, little rhythm and blues novelty act in between sets of, of the larger band. and, and um, you know, he, he, uh, he impressed Alexis with his guitar playing, which, you know, for a teenager, that's pretty good because Alexis has been working on this for a long time. And, and also, um, you know, Alexis is bringing people like Muddy Waters. Uh, Big Bill in, Yeah, Big Bill Broonzy, but Muddy in particular uh, with his electric outfit to London to perform and, and telling people that it's jazz.
0: And sneaking it in. And I think that's an important point that you talk about. London didn't really have a rock scene. They had some stuff for the Dave Clark Five and Tottenham out on the fringes, but there's nothing comparable to what's going on in Liverpool where they have dozens of rock clubs and hundreds of bands. London doesn't have anything, and the Stones kind of sneak into the trad jazz scene and take
1: over. Right. Well, they. it got to the point where I believe I I mentioned a a jazz festival somewhere where... um, the uh, the once the Rolling Stones have formed, they're performing and 50 percent of the audience shows up to see them and leaves after their set is over, leaving all these other jazz musicians who are supposedly, you know, big dogs on the London scene with a half filled house.
0: Yeah. And one thing I think you get across and also comes across in the Stones documentary Crossfire Hurricane by Martin Scorsese is how calculated they were. They knew they were pretty boys. They knew they were charismatic. And they and Brian Jones had this weird vision that he could take hardcore blues like Jimmy Reed, uh, also Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, but Muddy Waters and, and and Reed and things like that that were in no way, shape, or form seen as commercial potential. And somehow he knew that that was the next well, big they thing. They were
1: selling. I mean, Jimmy Reed was selling records in the United States. Once again, a guy who was taken up by rank-and-file college students. Um, once again, I'm back to my dorm in 1965, and almost everybody had Jimmy Reed live. Hmm.
0: I didn't, I, that's the sort of thing you don't know growing up decades later. <laughs> and and uh, But one thing I think that's important is that the Stones were conceived independent of the Beatles. You, you talk about them being bummed out when they hear Love Me Do on the radio, and I think it's very important because the Stones... Influenced rock and roll in a way. The Beatles are enormous, but they're not the template for the future rock bands. Like right. Well, Zone. one
1: is coming out of a pop tradition, no matter how weird the angle is that they're that they're coming off of it as, and the others are coming out of a long tradition of jazz and blues, um, even though they're British. They, they, they as you said, Brian Jones sees them with as possessing. A degree of authenticity that these other guys don't have. Um, it isn't until the Beatles are in London recording and go to the Crawdaddy Club and see this band that everybody's been talking about while they've been in London and they go, oh, these guys are interesting. And then they go back to Edith Grove and spend the whole rest of the night playing records and, you know, not even leaving until the sun comes back up. So there was a commonality there and I, I think both parties then agreed, well there's this town is big enough for the two of us.
0: Yeah. I mean the the stones blow away the Mercy Beat followers that the Beatles had brought in their wake, the Billy J. Kramers and the Jerry and the Pacemakers. Well,
1: they do and, here, but they
0: certainly didn't in England. Not in 63, no. But if you put I Want to Be Your Man on a shuffle with a 1963 playlist, it sounds like Black Flag, yeah. or early Metallica. It is amazingly raunchy and loud, and you really get a feel for how radical the Stones were.
1: And yet it didn't sell, and Jagger hated it. Yeah. <laughs> but it did make it number 12 on the
0: charts and, and that, kept, kept their momentum that's going. That's purchasable. Yeah, <laughs> that's and Andrew and up,
1: It's a little harder.
0: Yeah, and Andrew Goldham, their manager, has a couple of great memoirs, Stoned and Stone Two, that talks about the chicanery he went through to get those records yeah. on the charts. Yeah. And uh, you know, Brian Epstein, the Beatles' manager, is constantly accused of having bought "Let It," "Let Love Me Do" into the charts, but uh, Mark Lewison, and his definitive bio of the Beatles, Tune In, debunks
1: that pretty thoroughly. Sure, because. They were an actual organic phenomenon. you know you don't need to buy your way into the charts when you've got, I don't know how many kids do you suppose there were in Liverpool and Manchester once again, it's a, a tale of, of rivalry, you know and and kids in the north who had seen them, you know, playing, on, on these, these short tours that they'd done. How many kids do you think were waiting for the words, there is a Beatles record to come across and, and rush to your local record store and buy it? It seems to be everybody who saw them live.
0: I mean, yeah. the impression you get in the stories, you know, and it's well-documented. They would play someplace, 25 people would show up, they'd play there again, it'd be 200 people. Right. Next time it's a 1,000 people. I mean, the Beatles were this enormous phenomenon just a real Sue Giner's thing that uh, amazing charisma and talent and work ethic that just compelled people in their timing was amazing.
1: Yeah. Well, that was something nobody could have chosen. Yeah. You know, in, including the Kennedy assassination in America.
0: Yeah. They come and, and I'm sure you'll talk about it in volume two. They come across as sort of the antidote to the, the depression of the Kennedy assassination. Here's something new, bright, shiny, foreign. Yeah.
1: it's And it's pop. It's, it's not, it isn't at all looking into the abyss of, of, um, who do you love?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's none of the Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis, there's no, the connection, their music's descended from the deep South in a way. I mean, they're, they're into things like Ray Charles.
1: And, but they're also into Goffin and King. I mean, yeah. when they came to America, uh, the reporter says, is there anybody you want to meet here? And Lennon immediately says, Jerry Goffin and, and Carol King.
0: Yep. And then, and I was also talks up Smokey Robinson as his favorite yeah.
1: songwriter. And they
0: look very, they're mod, they're continental European fashion. It does not look threatening. It looks funny to Americans.
1: Right. It's, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, we got to give, give credit to uh, Brian Epstein for that. Because as, as a gay, uh, cosmopolitan Jewish guy with a lot of connections in London, he had a good eye for fashion. And he knew how important that was for pop singers. Yeah, and he got them out of their leather
0: suits, which right.
1: were awesome, but way too much for If they the If people. they'd come off the plane in New York wearing leather suits, I don't think, well, the girls were already screaming, so who knows? Yeah, who
0: knows? But but Epstein packaged them brilliantly. And, and that's one thing, you know, Brian Epstein definitely, I don't think, gets enough credit. He died in 1967, tragically. But the Beatles had a really almost miraculous ability to attract not only high-performance people, but well-meaning people. Yeah, and Epstein and George Martin, these guys looked after the boys. Right.
1: And and you don't get that that much in pop music. Right, you don't. Uh, well, you have to have a certain amount of self-interest. And Brian's self-interest was that he didn't want to be, he didn't want to really go into the family business of, of, of selling furniture and electronics so much as he, he he liked after his first visit to the cavern he was really taken by the energy. He liked that teenage energy which he had sort of missed growing up as a misfit kid and um, you know Martin was in deep trouble. He had been a star producer and then he had gotten divorced and Hooked up. I don't think he even married her. His secretary. He'd been having an he affair. He couldn't with, get divorced. I don't think his wife would grant him the divorce. Right. And so here was this guy who was making Decca look bad. Yeah, EMI, and and, uh, and yeah, and and was the, this is one of
0: the great revelations yeah, in the EMI, Lewisons book uh, that Martin was basically blackmailed into taking the Beatles. Right. Uh, by the Publishing wing of VMI Ardmore and Breachwood, and at, uh, Lewis and Mark Lewis in his amazing book Tune In talks about the A and R guy at Ardmore and Breachwood, Wood, and all the work he did to break Love Me Do, and yet the first thing George Martin does when he has his epiphany and realizes the Beatles are are really something is cut those guys
1: out and bring in Dick James uh, as the publisher. Well, Dick James was a lot hungrier than the EMI publishers were. Yeah, for sure. And, and and Martin knew. I mean, you know, let's face it. He, he had all the cards. He now had a hit, and he had th- this group that was going to produce more hits because they were already writing songs like a faucet that you couldn't turn off. A- and so it was time to get somebody in who would be your pet Publisher.
0: Yeah, and the advantage he had was Epstein and the Beatles knew him, and they didn't know the backstory. Right, and they thought that that he had been the guy that brought him in, and they did work with him well. They had a real amazing chemistry, and Dick James and the Beatles publishing deal gets a lot of, you know, revisionist criticism. But actually, this deal that James put together to form their own publishing company and give them a fifty percent ownership stake in it was really progressive for the time, especially for a group that had one hit song.
1: Right, but I think like Martin, he knew that there was more where that came from and it's better to have, you know, 50% of a million dollars than all of $10,000.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, and so this thread of the Beatles and the Stones sort of rumbles as an undercurrent throughout your chapter on 1963 music. And you talk about the impeccable timing of the Beatles. Somebody with bad timing was Phil Spector, who pours his heart and soul into this Christmas album, you know, that testimonial he has at the beginning of the album. Right. And yet it's all washed away by the Kennedy assassination. It was like the year without a Christmas,
1: basically. Well, he, he was luckier than Vaughn Meter was. Von Meter was the guy who did The, uh, the First Family, yeah. and which was a, a really brilliant comedy album about, you know, the, the Kennedys. And it, it was, it was at one point during the year, selling faster than any LP had ever sold. I mean, it was ubiquitous. Everybody I knew had a copy of it, even people who hated Democrats, because it was funny. Yeah. And Meter's accent was right on. He was from Maine, so he uh, knew how to speak in uh, the uh, kind of Kennedy style. So, you know, here's this great hit. Meter actually was very lucky. He uh, worked as a uh, New England dialect comedian in New England and continued to live in Maine and was very successful yeah. as, as a comedian, but not as a superstar.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, the, the the fall of Camelot had an enormous impact on the American psyche and the Beatles uh, jumped in. I mean, it, was, it really is a perfect place to split this history of rock and roll because America before 63 and after are very different countries. And
1: the other thing that I I always emphasize when I talk about why did you end the book here is the AFO executives driving to Los Angeles. AFO was a collective, uh, it stands for All for One, that Harold Batiste, who is a trumpet player, and a um, arranger-composer in New Orleans had put together. He, he was influenced by the um, Nation of Islam and uh, the whole black Muslim thing into going for black power in, in the record industry. And so he, uh, he set up this AFO studio band and record label and collective, and he, he worked with all kinds of people. Ellis Marsalis... Uh, made a bunch of records for him. And um, he had real high ideals and worked with um, Pete Fountain and Al Hurt on trying to integrate the Black Musicians Union and the White Musicians Union. And even with the two best-selling artists in New Orleans backing him up, the old-school racists wouldn't do anything. So that was that. They, they decided, I mean, I I heard this at the last Ponderosa Stomp, which was two years ago uh, in New Orleans. And um, the bass player, whose name I don't remember, was there. And he talked about it. He said, Harold came into a meeting of the executives. He said, how many cars we got? And they said, two, but they're station wagons. He says, good. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to move to Los Angeles to get studio work. I've had it with these people and all of a sudden the studio musicians who made that great sound in New Orleans were gone and went out to LA. Yeah. Well, not only did they immediately work their way into the scene there, but they created this vacuum in New Orleans, which would have to be filled because there were a lot of singers There were a lot of songwriters, and they needed to record. Cosmo was sitting there waiting for people to book. We need some new people. So not only was the face of soul changing, not only was the face of rock and roll changing, not only was the face of pop changing, but in a smaller context, New Orleans had just been turned on its head. So that's another thing that 1964 was going to have to deal with.
0: Yeah, and and one of the people that immigrated was Earl Palmer, the great rock drummer who goes out to L.A., and he and Hal Blaine kind of duel back and forth uh, as the lead drummer in the wrecking crew. So many hits in L.A. with those guys playing drums Yep. the rest of the decade.
1: And yet the very first session they did was Sonny and Cher. And, And Batiste, I mean... He heard Sonny sitting at the piano going, do, 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 do. And he goes, kid, you got to write a verse for that. Because we can turn this into a song. He got no credit. Huh, huh. He, but uh, that's the thing. He, he was willing to be known as somebody who would help you as a doctor on your unfinished idea. And, you know, Sherilyn Sarkozy is sitting there waiting for <clears throat> her cue. And and is still writing the song, there studio time, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, studio time is being wasted, while, while Sonny takes his half-cooked idea. Yeah. A, and Batiste goes, "Come on, kid, we can do this." Yeah. And Carol Kay I think throws in the the bass line. That's yeah. the hook.
0: Yeah. And uh, and Sonny is somebody who's been sort of a gopher for Phil Spector, and and he- a talent scout for um for uh, Specialty Records. Yeah. And and so. Uh, in a way, Phil Spector had this opportunity to be a, sort of a Motown, but he couldn't let go enough. He had to control everything himself. Right, exactly. And so people like Sonny and Cher slipped through his fingers. Which, right. I
1: mean, there's no reason whatever that he couldn't have recorded them. Yeah, and and, and had a second act. In uh, well, but also, I mean, he already had tons and tons and tons of of acts and, and records, and he... He wasn't real big on people writing their own material because look at all these people he could get from Aldon, yeah. from Screen Gems, and Come he could on. join in and get a co-writing credit, right? And
0: uh, and 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 legitimately because he really yeah. was a songwriter. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about the Christmas album though because I really find the dedication he puts on that poignant and touching, in li- especially in light of his ultimate fate. You know, Phil Spector's in prison today, which right. you know somebody died, he killed him, and. That's justice, but it's still very sad to think that somebody who had this kind of sensitivity and gave the world so much happiness is such a miserable, cursed person.
1: Right. But, I mean, that was a wonderful album. And, you know, if some of the social tsunamis hadn't happened, it would have been remembered a lot better. I mean, really, that that album didn't actually start to be listened to seriously until about 1970. I mean, Rolling Stone ran a review of it and it had already been out for five years. Yeah, and and, uh, and it eventually and did. And nobody had heard of it. And you could go down to your local drugstore and find it in the cutout bins, along with all the rest of the Phil Spector stuff, which wasn't nearly as good. This was an album. This was Phil learning to make an album, which almost nobody did back then. Of course, he had a concept, which was Christmas. Yeah. And some of it was old chestnuts like Frosty the Snowman, and some of it he wrote himself. Yeah, and brought in Alden songwriters too to, yeah.
0: to work with him. And it, it's, it, you know, if that had been a hit, it makes you wonder what other albums Phil might have done throughout the 60s.
1: But would he have grown with the ways of the oncoming, you know, the, the, the kind of thinking... Yeah, the and, self-contained band. Right. I, I don't think he would have dug that. He had spent his entire teenage life learning from Lieber and Stoller, from Snuffy Garrett at Liberty Records. He learned old school music business stuff. And old school music business stuff carried on for a number of years after that. Yeah. But, but it wasn't the cutting edge. It, it wasn't the future. And it was doomed. It was old and it was dying.
0: Yeah. And so you end the chapter talking about a huge hit but kind of an odd thing
1: Skeeter Davis's end of the world yeah well that was that was a weird that was on RCA so that they didn't have that kind of you know Acuff Rose monument records thinking and, and those kind of resources in terms of orchestrators and and arrangers um, of the kind that Roy Orbison had she was just a a country chick singer who had been around for a while, and yet they they found this song. I don't remember who wrote it. Did she write herself? I don't think I, so. I, she might have. We have to look. I mean, it's that. it's like "It's My Party." I'll cry if I want to. In it's a teenage girl saying, you know, how can all of these wonderful things in the world keep on going on and ignore the fact that I'm heartbroken? And she. It's a stupid thought that she completely carries off. <laughs> yeah, and in the
0: context of the Kennedy assassination, I think might have that might well, have Well no, been the some... the
1: song the song hit in the early Before. part of the year. I just used it because I, I, I thought it was a good title for the chapter. Yes, and it is very fitting. Because so, it is. It's the end of a lot of people's worlds, including Phil Spector's. Yeah, and
0: only 23 years old. He's going to have some more monumental hits with the Righteous Brothers, and then a monumental flop with Ike and Tina Turner, and then go on to seclusion come back with the Beatles. But he's never really Phil Spector again after 1963. Right. Not in the same way. And uh, so that's our uh, chapter. Uh, 1963, we'll be back with more of these. Thanks for listening. That's the end of our first season. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Ed Ward and I talk about musical history. I'll be back in 2018 with more music talks, so stay tuned for that. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold.